Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Mabel Romero, Assistant Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And today I'm joined by Andrew Guthrie Ferguson, who is a visiting professor at the American University Washington College of Law and professor of law at UDC David A. Clark School of Law. He's here to chat with us about his new paper, Big Data Prosecution in Brady, which is forthcoming in the UCLA Law Review. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really, really excited about your paper. And this is looking at a really interesting burgeoning issue in prosecution and in Brady and um, providing discovery to defense counsel and their clients. And you describe this problem that's occurring right now where prosecutor offices are going digital. Prosecutor offices are absorbing massive amounts of data from all of these different sources, as you describe in the paper. Um, how exactly does this focus on big data actually change how prosecution works? Because when I think of prosecution, I think of something that's mainly reactive. Someone commits a crime, you collect evidence, or at least you know your, your law enforcement team does and then brings it to you as a prosecutor. And then you charge someone, you move forward with that case. Um, is this necessarily true anymore? Has the prosecution role changed because of big data? So we're starting to see a different sort of theory of prosecution. So, you know, I studied uh, big data policing for a long time, and I've sort of been checking on how new data streams have changed policing. And I stumbled into this uh, world of prosecution about how uh, prosecutors are deciding to sort of look at their communities, look at their crime patterns, look at the individuals in their uh, communities who they think are involved in crime and start doing data collection. Um, we've seen it in Manhattan, in New York, uh, and Manhattan's been exporting it to other uh, jurisdictions, including San Francisco and other companies and, and uh, countries and, and, and jurisdictions. And in some ways, I think it really is going to be the future of prosecution, a more proactive, more data-centric, more, they call it intelligence-led prosecution, more intelligence-oriented prosecution, uh, a way of tracking patterns, people, and um criminal problems in a community. Um, so we're, I'm happy to talk a bit about what it looks like in practice. Um, but I think as a theory, it is new and it's evolving. And I really do think it's going to be the future of prosecution for good or ill. So we'll talk about what that looks like in practice in a little bit. Um, but I wanted to start talking about this sort of intelligence driven theory and how it's expanded, how it changes, how prosecutors view cases and the like. And, you know, we've got these government-controlled data sets, and they're not necessarily searchable, they're not necessarily organized, they're not necessarily really accessible to, I would imagine even given how um, unstructured, and we'll talk about what your definition of that is later, how unstructured they are, they could even be initially difficult to use. Um, but let's talk just a bit more about big data prosecution, what that looks like. Um, so what advantages do prosecutors have in trying to centralize and share all this information? What, what efficiencies does that, does that present? So I think that the theory and the plan for big data prosecution is to say that what we normally think of as sort of the randomness of crime, in many ways, isn't that random. Uh, what we know about the patterns of criminal activity isn't necessarily unknowable. Um, and that a shift to sort of a proactive look uh, at this uh, idea 
um, can change things. So, for example, in New York, in Manhattan, what they did was they said, look, let's try to think about where crimes occur. And we have the data. We know both geographically and even individually who's involved. What if we sort of break down our uh, communities and our areas into different kinds of precincts? In those precincts, we'll be able to identify where the crimes are, what kind of crimes, who's involved in the crimes, and then really dive in to think about who do we think are the crime drivers, the individuals, the humans, and maybe list them out. They literally came up with a list of like 15 to 25 priorities offenders, people they thought was involved in the criminal activity. And they said, all right, we're collecting information about crime patterns uh, and criminal activity every single day. What if we took all this information, the stuff that we sort of studied and the stuff that we're collecting, and we uploaded it into a cloud system, sort of like we've done in many other industries and technologies, uh, so that we can have, you know, searchable wiki pages for our suspected, you know, gang members. Uh, We can have, uh, you know, information about sort of the retaliatory acts of different criminal groups in our neighborhoods. And we can basically use data to visualize the patterns of crime in particular neighborhoods and then be able to um, identify, uh, because, you know, the sort of data, the inputs are continuous, uh, you know, who's involved and and that will help us decide, uh, you know, who to prosecute, who to target, where to put our police, where to put our, our efforts in, in prosecution, and really, you know, create like large scale cloud data sets of, uh, you know, the criminal actors in a community. So it sounds like this is potentially a really great thing um, when you think about it that way. You might be saving resources, you might be prosecuting fewer people this way. And this was developed initially, as you mentioned in your paper in Manhattan in around 2010. And it, this model has started to get exported to lots of different jurisdictions, correct? Yeah. So I mean, if you talk to the people who started the Manhattan DA's Crime Strategies Unit, they say, we, we've figured this out. Like this, this is not only a benefit to prosecution, it's a benefit to society. And they would say, look, the crime patterns uh, in a community can be isolated to human individuals, people who are actually pulling the trigger. And if we're right about our theory and our strategy, we can reduce arrests, we can reduce um, sort of police presence, and yet also reduce crime. And they point to Manhattan's sort of lowered crime rate. Now, Manhattan's had a lowered crime rate for almost a decade and a half now. So it's hard to know what is the cause, what's not. But they say, look, we can be able to target these people in a way that is actually, uh, uh, you know, progressive in a, in, a, in a way that means that there's, you know, less of a concern of mass incarceration. Now, there's a lot of pushback. And a lot of people will, you know, say that that doesn't work. But the, the theory of it uh, has been pushed nationally. There have been conferences uh, hosted by John Jay uh, College uh, that have essentially pitched intelligence-led prosecution as the future of prosecution. Uh, Prosecutors from all over the country, from Louisiana, Baton Rouge, uh, San Francisco, California, Kansas, or whoever, I don't even know where they all came from, uh, but they show up to learn what it looks like. What does it mean to have a data-driven prosecution system? What does it mean to sort of build intelligence-led prosecution? Uh, And so we have seen, you know, a handful of pilot projects across the nation where this idea of a data-driven prosecution strategy is not only dominant, but it's really the controlling philosophy behind the offices now. 
I was really struck by a quotation that you included in the paper from San Francisco DA Gascon, um, saying that traditionally prosecutors have approached crime one case at a time. However, this approach doesn't make sense, and we know that crime is not driven by a series of isolated incidents, but rather tends to concentrate across individuals and locations. And like I mentioned before, this sounds potentially like it'd be a great thing that you'd be saving resources, focusing all of your efforts more on you know, for lack of a better way, putting it really active, suspected criminals and the like. Um, but has this actually worked out in practice? Have DA's offices only been focusing on um, really serious felonies that have been repeated by one person or anything like that? Or has this focus kind of spilled beyond those edges to things more petty than that? So yes and no. So the, the original theory, which makes a lot more sense, is look, if we can target violent criminals, um, there really are probably a handful of people who are the most you know, potentially violent in a community. Maybe we can identify them. People in the community actually sometimes do know who they are. Uh, and perhaps, you know, if we kept an eye or surveillance on them, that would be one thing. Um, however, as it happens, even in Manhattan, there's a slippage, right? So initially, you know, if you say it's focused on violent crime, people are like, oh, that makes sense. Well, then you say, you know, there are actually also these shoplifters that keep, you know, stealing from Dwayne Reed. Like, maybe we should target them. Or, you know, those people around the transit, uh, you know, hubs that are really distracting to tourists. So let's not target them. And so it has happened. There have been reports on it that have shown that this sort of idea of targeting only violent offenders has actually been, you know, uh, also applied to, you know, targeting sort of recidivist offenders. Uh, and some of those involve just property crimes and sort of lower level crimes. And so there's a real danger in terms of how this technology gets used. Essentially, what you're doing is you're targeting areas and targeting people with the coercive power of prosecutors, not just police, prosecutors who, as we know, have almost unlimited power in the criminal justice system. Uh, so you better be darn sure you're right about the people you're targeting, because there's no real check on uh, those uh, those target or the people being targeted um, if prosecutors decide they want to go after you. So can you give us an overview of these types of information that are be co- being collected using this new technology that underlies an intelligence-driven prosecutor's office? Right. So some of it is, you know, the run of the mill data that we always have collected. Right. So you have data about active cases. Right. That stuff will come into the prosecutors. The police officer will show up uh, with a crime and with a case and report it. All of that will now get inputted into a data set that is digital, not necessarily on paper. Uh, And so there is some, uh, you know, a change, not a, not a dramatic change, about putting all of the information into a larger data set that is searchable, uh, but also, you know, that's just modernizing, you know, prosecution office. Instead of having the paper files, like when I was trying cases, you know, prosecutors had it mostly on paper files and paper uh, uh, documents. Now, of course, it makes sense to put that into, uh, you know, some kind of digital format. But, you know, with the digital format, you can now search it. You can find repeat players, repeat officers, repeat cases. You can search by location and do things you couldn't, couldn't otherwise do. They're also inputting uncharged crimes, right? Now, we've always known that uncharged crimes could become an active case. But generally speaking, if you didn't have 
uh, you know, a report or a perpetrator or a victim, you might not actually be recording uh, those kinds of crimes in any any sort of uh, structured way. Uh, now, one of the the sort of focuses on intelligence-led prosecution is looking for the uncharged crime. Let's say there's a shooting, there's there's a report of a shooting, but there's no victim, there's no uh, suspect. It is sort of out there and probably not going to get a whole lot of attention uh, without one of those two things. But now, in a data system that's collecting it, you can kind of put in all of the unreported or uncharged uh, crimes that are out there and start seeing patterns you might not have seen. You're going to have data about particular activity, right? You'll be able to identify places as being the location of a certain kind of crime. Maybe it's a gang violent crime or reciprocal acts of gang violence. Maybe it's car thefts or burglaries or uh, certain kinds of property crimes that are happening in particular ways. You'll be able to see crime uh, patterns in new ways, and you might actually be able to identify, you know, a, a redirection of uh, resources if there's a particular kind of crime uh, that you really want to target. Uh, most transformatively, I think, is is this idea of identifying priority offenders, this idea that you would literally come up with a list, 25 people um, who you think are driving crime in your neighborhood. And your goal is to take them out, to incapacitate them, um, not by the crimes that you have uh, you know, them dead to rights on, but crimes that, I mean, you, you don't have the information on, but you think that they are the crime drivers. So you're essentially looking for ways to take them out because you think they are the sort of cause of the uptick in crime in a neighborhood. And that kind of target list, I think, is really troubling. You know, it reminds me of kind of like the drone strikes in Afghanistan, not, you know, the idea that you're basically prioritizing because most of these are young men, young men of color in New York, um, who are now on some priority list with their names and their pictures and their affiliations all in a system. And the idea of how that could be used or misused is pretty obvious. Um, and if, you know, the prosecutors are right about who they're identifying, you know, maybe there's some win there, but there's also a real danger of uh, slippage and associational guilt and all sorts of problems of race and class and bias that can be filtered in. And so that to me is a huge change in philosophy. And then finally, uh, there's this network effect, right? This idea of being able to figure out uh, who's connected with whom, right? One of the things that data gives you uh, that you didn't have before is to be able to do social network analysis, to be able to find the connecting points of uh, people in a, a community and see who's associated with whom. And so not only do you get to sort of go deep into someone's sort of criminal history, you also get to see this larger network. And so all of this information is now being put into a cloud system, for better or worse, that's being able to help uh, uh, prosecutors sort of see criminal patterns and see crime activity in a community. So this sounds like a lot of information that a prosecutor's office would have to absorb and try to centralize. So let's look at a real world example. How does this all get centralized in Manhattan? So uh, in different ways. So on one hand, you know, the, the goal was to sort of create a quote unquote seamless web between uh, NYPD information and prosecutor information. So that would mean taking all of your court data and all of your prosecution data and then connect it with uh, all of your police data. Now in New York, in Manhattan, like that's a tremendous amount of information. Every single day, there are tons of cases coming through. There are hundreds of thousands of cases, you know, ending up in court on a lot more than those in the sort of criminal process that don't make it to court. And so sorting through all of that uh, is really, really difficult. And I think one of the problems with uh, beginning this in Manhattan is that the data overload is uh, pretty real. What they have been effective in doing is being able to identify the people they think are involved in criminal activity and then create what they call arrest alerts. So 
what would used what used to happen in Manhattan is someone who the police suspect is involved in you know a series of pretty serious uh, crimes uh, gets picked up on a much less serious crime, and because Manhattan criminal courts are so overwhelmed, um, the person would be processed through and get out probably without any prosecutor on the ground in the courthouse knowing that this is one of these people that they really think might be involved in something a lot worse. Now, with an arrest alert system, prosecutors are able to essentially send emails or the equivalent uh, out to line prosecutors say, hey, wait a minute, this is someone we care about. This is someone we want to either, you know, hold, not give uh, pretrial detention uh, ability, you know, ability to get out. We want to debrief them. We want to be able to, uh, you know, max out their sentence or do whatever we can because we think this is a person uh, who is endangering our community. And that kind of information sharing uh, at sort of a pretty rough level is happening. Um, but otherwise, what they're doing is they're just collecting and understanding and visualizing crime patterns um, with some big cases. Sometimes you'll see big gang prosecutions that are part and parcel of this kind of uh, strategy. Uh, but a lot of times it's just, you know, giving prosecutors more information to figure out what's going on in their communities. So you introduce this concept of unstructured big data here in this paper, and you explained, at least for purposes of this paper, unstructured, um, referring to the fact that the information is not in some sort of formal searchable database, it's not organized in any sort of predefined matter. So What's the potential for Brady information in these different data systems? Could you give us an overview of um, potential, you know, Brady evidence that should be turned over that's getting skipped over because this data is, as you put it, unstructured? Sure. So, you know, this paper is, you know, as most of my papers, three papers in one. Uh, people always say that, and so it's true. You know, I basically have explored what happens when a prosecution office decides to sort of put all of their data into some sort of centralized cloud system and build a system that is very powerful for prosecution, but didn't really think about the Brady material that's also going to be in that system. And I talked to some of the engineers who helped develop uh, the original system uh, for New York back in when they were partnering with Palantir and some of these other people. And they said, I was like, did anyone ever ask you to think about Brady? And they're like, no, in fact, you're the first person to raise it. And like, to me, that's part of the structure problem, right? So you, even in a structured system, you could have built in sort of flags or other issues to sort of capture some of the potential impeaching or exculpatory information that is needs to be turned over as part of Brady uh, in a system. And so that's problem one. Problem two is the fact that prosecutors are also responsible for all this unstructured data, namely the you know video cameras. There are over 9,000 9, you know, linked video cameras running through the domain awareness system in Manhattan, capturing a whole, t whole lot of information on the streets. They have automated license plate readers. They have police body cams. They have all all of this information, sensors that are collecting data, that is under Brady, the responsibility of the government, if they have this information, if it contains impeaching or uh, exculpatory information to turn over to the defense. However, if you don't structure unstructured data, if you don't have a way of searching through those video surveillance, you create a, a puzzle or a problem, right? There's no way you could find it. You might actually have Brady, but you don't know it. And so what the paper does, it says, look, we have these two technologies playing out in cities like Manhattan and soon to be cities everywhere. We have police uh, collecting and sort of governments collecting surveillance data in an unstructured way. And we have prosecutors collecting uh, you know, criminal data and prosecution data in a more structured way. But neither of them have really thought about the flip side of what happens when this uh, data comes into court. How, are, how is a prosecutor in Manhattan going to be able to explain to a judge 
that they have searched for Brady information in their system when when it was designed, they hadn't thought about that problem, and they probably can't. So they're going to be standing up in court, recognizing, Your Honor, Your Honor, there might very well be Brady here, but I have no idea how to find it, and I can't find it because of our the way our system was designed. And to me, that is a problem, but also potentially a solvable problem if you think about the structure of building these systems in the future. So who actually does this flagging and who actually makes it searchable? I doubt that a lot of prosecutors are trained in being able to do this. They're not necessarily coders or anything. And you mentioned engineers. Who who does this work? So, you know, that's the, 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 the real question, right? So and the real problem is that as it was being designed sort of organically in Manhattan, they weren't thinking about this. The point of the paper is to say, you know, as we move forward and as Manhattan has to maybe, you know, adapt to a new world anyway with its new discovery rules and everything else, maybe we should, if we're going to use these systems, maybe we should build these systems with Brady in mind. And we haven't in the past and we need to. And that is a task for engineers. It's for the people who are developing um, systems that will help uh, police and prosecutors sort of manage crime. Um, it probably is not going to be, uh, you know, the task of the line prosecutors who aren't necessarily trained in that way, but are trained in Brady. Um, and my hope is that the paper will start a conversation between sort of the development engineer side of like Silicon Valley and whatever the next startup is that's selling their products to prosecutor's office and prosecutors themselves uh, to have a conversation about what needs to be turned over. And then also probably have defense counsel involved uh, because there's always a battle about what is Brady and what is not Brady. So we do have a lot of law students and others who haven't had the chance to take criminal procedure who listen to this podcast. So could you just briefly explain to us what Brady does and what Brady requires? So so Brady versus Maryland is a Supreme Court case that says as a matter of due process, the prosecutor must turn over exculpatory and or impeaching evidence if it's material to the defense for uh, guilt or sentencing. It is a broad requirement, essentially, for prosecutors to turn over uh, information that might be helpful to the defense, either impeaching guilt or affecting sentencing. The Brady case itself uh, involved uh, a, a gentleman who was sort of a co-conspirator in a murder. Uh, his co-conspirator had given a series of uh, rather uh, damning uh, confessions that blamed uh, Brady, except for one of them. And one of them, he took responsibility for actually being the person who did the deed. Uh, and that piece of evidence, that, you know, impeaching piece of evidence, that exculpated piece of evidence, uh, was required by the court to be turned over. Uh, and so over, you know, the decades since Brady was uh, uh, decided, there have been a series of Supreme Court cases that basically have said, look, if you're a prosecutor, uh, and you have information that impeaches your witnesses and or is exculpatory to the defense. It is, as a matter of due process fairness, your obligation, your duty to turn it over. Uh, professional rules have augmented that and em emphasized that, that it's also a matter of professional uh, responsibility for prosecutors to turn it over. Uh, so as a constitutional matter or an ethical matter, it's, it is um, uh, something that they must uh, factor in. In almost every case, you know, prosecutors have to realize, look through their files to determine whether or not there's information that needs to be turned over that would be material that would affect the case uh, that should be turned over uh, pretrial to defense uh, as a matter of uh, fairness. And so, uh, you know, the point of the article is essentially to say, 
as we build these new big data prosecution systems, we have to be thinking about this due process principle, uh, which actually could work pretty well uh, because the whole new technology is all about drawing links, drawing connections, flagging things, uh, and identifying things. And if you think about the architecture of the system at the front end, you can create a sort of Brady compliant system uh, on the back end. Great. So there are all kinds of weaknesses already kind of baked into Brady. I think a lot of people agree on this, that, you know, identifying Brady material isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do, especially if you're a prosecutor. It's hard to put yourself in the shoes of defense counsel trying to figure out what's exculpatory and what's material. And there are all those sorts of issues as well. Um, How does this, how does the fact that, you know, we're dealing with these, big data systems, how does, it, how does that go about exacerbating this problem? So I think it's a real problem. It's a real problem in the way it's structured, right? The duty of Brady disclosures on a prosecutor who has to make, you know, a determination about whether this information is impeaching and or exculpatory. And again, at the moment they're making that determination, they're also prosecuting someone that one hopes they think is guilty, right? Hopefully you're only prosecuting people you think are guilty. Um, so it's easy to sort of have the sort of cognitive, you know, minimizing or bias to not really see it as uh, uh, really impeaching or really exculpatory. And so there are lots of battles of, uh, you know, in court and a lot of, you know, convictions uh, that are overturned or at least errors found where prosecutors have essentially withheld Brady uh, because they either misunderstood uh, its relevance or didn't see it in sort of the eyes of the defense. Um, And so my hope in this sort of thinking about whether data could change it is that maybe we could sort of develop technologies that might help prosecutors go through it. So if you redesign the Brady system to actually have a series of flags and sort of network connections uh, that would identify potential Brady, then there would be a moment of accountability where, again, it's going to be the prosecutor's duty to make this determination or not. It's not going to be a computer's determination, but the information would be, you know, given to them. So, for example, if you're a prosecutor and you are, you know, trying a gang case involving gang violence and you think that this particular person uh, is involved, you know, was involved, um, the fact that in your you know, computer files, you now have essentially the history of gang violence on this block. You know, the criminal histories and the sort of debriefings of all of the gang members in this block. Um, You have a ton more information. Much of it is probably going to be pretty impeaching to some of your witnesses. That probably needs to be turned over and you would be able to see it in a sort of new way. In the same way you can visualize crime patterns in a new way, you should be able to visualize Brady in a new way uh, if you sort of set up your system to create uh, these flags and connections. So we mentioned earlier on that Prosecutors are sort of shifting their focus in the way that they work. They are they are engaging a lot more in the way of investigation rather than being purely reactive. Given that they're engaging in investigation, that their offices are engaging in data collection, do you worry about cognitive biases and investigative biases that prosecutors might have, especially if they're supposed to be trying to identify Brady material for defense counsel? 
I mean, yes, and and that is going to be a, a problem. My hope would be that maybe we could systematize some of this. I mean, right now, you know, as any trial lawyer, you know, I was a trial lawyer for almost ten years. Every trial lawyer knows, like, you have your files, you have what you know exists, you have a whole lot of information that may or may not be in a file, uh, and you have to make a you know a hard you know kind of personal determination about. What is it that I have to sort of turn over? How do I evaluate it? How do I look at it from the other side's perspective? Um, and, you know, my hope is that, that, you know, all the data does is it allows a new way to visualize the same thing we know has always happened. Uh, but sometimes visualization really matters. Sometimes by seeing sort of patterns or data in a different way, it allows you to clearly see something different. So something that might not have been a potentially impeaching uh, you know, relationship or connection might, if like there's a little prompt that says, hey, did you see that this witness you're about to call has had like six prior connections with the police and actually was a victim of a stabbing, you know, two years ago from the same gang, maybe that thing that you wouldn't have picked up on before because it's just too much information, it's informal, it's not there, might get picked up anew. And you could sort of build into the system. It's not going to be perfect, but it might help sort of correct some of those very real cognitive biases, some of those real sort of information load, overload biases uh, that exist in every, you know, in, in the daily life of every prosecutor. They have too much information, too many facts, too many witnesses. It's really hard to keep track. But maybe seeing it will change that. Now, I remember working with paper files as both a prosecutor and defense attorney. And Brady, as you mentioned in your paper, really came about in this world where you still had reactive prosecutions, small data prosecution systems, you still had filing cabinets and the like. Um, now we're talking about something much larger here, this big data sort of system and a lot of networks that we didn't have the chance to look at earlier um, when we were still working in paper. Tell us more about your theory of a networked Brady and the sort of changes that a networked Brady would need to consider and adapt to? So, you know, the theory of network Brady is really flipping the theory of intelligence-led prosecution on its head, right? So if you think about what is the intelligence-led prosecution trying to do, they're trying to understand sort of relational uh, connections in a community. How do these people interact, group, so we can understand sort of criminal groups, criminal associations, and criminal patterns, we want to do a quantitative assessment. We want to figure out, like, where are the crimes, where are they located, and who's doing what. We want to do a qualitative assess, uh, you know, look to see if we can understand the motivations or the connections or the biases or any of these things. And we want it to be proactive, right? Not reactive, but proactive. And so the theory of network Brady is to take those same principles, but flip them on to Brady. Say, all right, well, let's have a relational, relational understanding of Brady, right? It's not just about the characters in this, you know, paper file. We now can do a long longitudinal study of this community, of knowing who is connected to whom and why, who does have, you know, prior uh, you know, beefs or arguments or violent acts against each individuals. We can see the relations of groups and connections of gangs and other uh, criminal groups in particular areas. And we can see if there's like an anomaly. Maybe this doesn't fit. Maybe this person, you know, it doesn't make sense that this person was charged because for all these other gangs that have been doing the exact same crime at the exact time at the same place. Or quantitatively, maybe we can figure out uh, by sort of doing a deep dive whether this person has been in the system before. Um, anyway, so the, the idea, and, and some of it's even proactive, right? Maybe we'll, you know, one of the things that happens is, you know, you would hope that a government witness who is an informant 
um, would be on the books is always a government form. But on a paper file, you might uh, fall apart. You may forget this person, you know, three years ago had to deal with the government. Once it's digitized, it's all there. So you would have a flag to say, hey, look, if this person ever shows up, we're going to know that we have to sort of tell the defense that they had a prosecution agreement about this kind of situation. Or for police officers, like if this police officer has been found not credible in this case, we now could have a, a listing, a digital listing. Like, hey, we can't call this guy uh, in the next case because we have a credibility problem. All of those are potentially quantifiable. They are qualitatively different. They're relational, relational, and they can be proactive. And to me, that allows you to sort of rethink Brady in a different way and perhaps in a more, you know, constructive way. Now, I love this concept that you introduced toward the end of the paper um, with regard to a Brady button. Now, you mentioned that in the paper, and I sort of envision a computer that has a button somewhere that's like, Bradyfy this, or something like that. And um, I thought it was um, rather an, an interesting, funny visual. But if we were able to do that, and you had your ideal big data system, what would that look like when it comes to um, incorporating Brady? So, so if you could think about what happens when a prosecutor is doing their normal business of inputting information, collecting data, collecting you know, investigative information about communities, individuals, groups, all those things. Each one of those is actually being put into a particular category, right? You literally, the, the structuring of the data set means you have to put it in a particular category. If you put it in a particular category, you can search for it by category. My hope is that if you design a, a system with Brady in mind, you would have categories and flags that would essentially correlate with the potential impeaching uh, information uh, that might be relevant for a particular case. And that all a Brady button would be doing is essentially collecting those category flags that you've already created an input. Now, of course, there's a catch. In order to make that work, you have to have people recognize that this is a potential uh, Brady problem, but sometimes there is, right? You might be able to say, if you're talking to a witness you know, who has a deal or a witness who's clearly lying or a witness who's covering up or a witness who's angry at a particular gang, some of those, you know, would require a flagging system that would then, you know, the Brady button would simply be the search function for let's find all the flags that might arise in this case. From a prosecutor's perspective, it might actually be a good sort of covering themselves that they did their due diligence. Hey, Your Honor, I went through, I pressed the Brady button, I did a search and nothing came up. Like they might actually have some cover in terms of uh, how this is designed that might be beneficial uh, in a way. And to me, it's the metaphor of if you design the sort of architecture of a intelligence-led prosecution system with Brady in mind, you should be able to find these flags relatively easy, just like you'd find a witness, just like you find an officer, just like you find an address. You can also find some of these Brady uh, uh, exculpatory impeaching pieces of information that might be relevant to a case. Well, I really enjoyed reading this paper. You joked earlier that this is three papers in one, but it's fantastic. But I also hope that you keep writing with regard to big data and Brady, and that we'll be seeing more of this in the future. Well, thank you. This uh, article apparently is going uh, uh, live this week or next week. So uh, it's hot off the press. Uh, and I, I really do think that this is going to be the future of prosecution. People have to start paying attention to uh, how we think about it, how we design these systems now so we don't have to write more of these papers later. 
I think it's absolutely the future of prosecution and, you know, big data driven prosecution systems too. So everyone should go and check this out forthcoming very shortly in the UCLA Law Review. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Watching over.